And if you would turn to Luke chapter 17, we're going to pick up in the middle of a sermon that I misjudged greatly last week. Um, so if you were not here, I'll give a quick review, but um, if you want the whole of what we saw last week, you'll have to go online and, and listen to that message at some point. Uh, we were looking at five marks of a normal Christian life. We're just looking at a passage of Scripture where Jesus is speaking to His disciples as they walk along the road. He, he's giving them some teachings, and then some lepers come up and interrupt that teaching. And we just kind of glanced at that whole passage of Scripture, and we saw in that Scripture five marks of the normal Christian life. We made it through two last week. I'm going to review them, and then we'll jump back in where we um, left off. The first, the first mark of a normal Christian life that we saw is found in verses 1 through 3 of Luke chapter 17, and it is falling, falling. And I know that may sound odd, especially if you weren't here last week, but part of the Christian life is falling because we are not perfect people. We all struggle with different sins. We all struggle with different doubts. We all struggle with different challenges. And Jesus does not ignore that reality. Instead, he deals with that reality, and he deals with it with a warning and with a woe and with a command for us to watch. First, we saw the warning in verse number one. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Jesus is warning us that even as Christians, life is not a bed of roses. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, everything doesn't just take care of itself. Everything doesn't just fall into place. In fact, sometimes things get more difficult. Inevitably, stumbling blocks are going to be placed in front of us, and those stumbling blocks can be twofold. On one hand, those stumbling blocks can be temptations that we face due to the world, due to the flesh, due to the devil, due to all of his schemes. On the other hand, those stumbling blocks can not only be temptations, but they can be trials and tests that we face in James 1, 2 through 4. James tells us, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a warning that stumbling blocks are inevitable. We need to be aware that we can stumble, we can trip, we can fall due to temptations or due to tests. Then he gives us a woe in the second part of verse 1 and verse number 2. But woe, to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Woe to the one who through, through whom these temptations come. Woe to the one through whom tests and trials may come. Don't be the one who leads others astray, especially these little ones, these little children or these spiritual children. Don't be one who leads others astray by being the source of unnecessary trials and tests. Don't be the one who leads others astray by being a temptation or leading them into temptation. Or Jesus will denounce you with a woe and say it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause someone to stumble. Christian life is characterized by falling. The stumbling blocks are inevitable, so be warned. Woe to the one 
Who becomes that stumbling block? And then thirdly, he says, watch in verse 3. So be on your guard. You can easily fall into temptations, trials, and tests. They're out there. They're everywhere. They're inevitable. Be sure you're not the one who would cause others to fall and to stumble. And in the meantime, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You be on guard, first of all, for yourself. Watch out for yourself. You be on guard, second of all, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You be there to step in and encourage them in areas that they need to be encouraged. You be willing to step in and point out to them areas that they may be distracted or areas they may be deceived or areas that they may have blind spots in and call them back to the faith. Watch out for yourself and watch out for those around you. We need each other. We need the corporate body. We need the fellowship of the saints to watch out for us. In Galatians 6, 1, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for each other. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted and watch out for yourself. So we see that one mark of a normal Christian life is not perfection, but it is falling. It's falling. And what sets what sets Believing sinners, apart from non-believing sinners, is believing sinners, when we fall, we repent. And we run back to Jesus, kind and strong, that we just sang about. The second mark of a normal Christian life we saw last week is forgiving. In verse number 4, Jesus went on, If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Jesus demands generous forgiveness. Notice that he says if, you're, if the one who sins against you returns to you and asks for forgiveness or says, I repent, forgive him. He doesn't say the person comes to you and says, I repent, and then you give him a 10-day trial period to make sure he was serious. It doesn't say you watch him for the next month or two and make sure he's trustworthy. You don't cause this person to re-earn their respect with you. No, you forgive them. When they come and say, I repent, you forgive them. Not just once, not just twice, not that three times, but seven times in a single day, you be willing to do this. And what Jesus is saying is that repentance needs to be, and, and forgiveness needs to be generous. Forgiveness needs to be perfect. That number seven is symbolizes spiritual perfection, completion. So Jesus is just saying perfectly, completely, generously, be a forgiver. That should characterize, should characterize the normal Christian life. We fall and we forgive. Thirdly, now we get into new ground. This is where we left off, verses 5 and 6. The third mark of the normal Christian life is faith. Faith. Jesus goes on in verses 5 and 6 of Luke chapter 17. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now the, the, the television preachers today say increase our pocketbooks. But these disciples said increase our what? Our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed... You would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. In other words, Jesus is saying, we need 
faith as Christians to do impossible things for him. I mean, we need faith as a Christian to be a Christian, right? What are the five solas of the Reformation? It's, it's sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola dea gloria, for the glory of God alone. It's one of the very five solas of the Reformation that we come to Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. You cannot even be a Christian without faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this is not my definition of faith. This is God's definition of faith. And it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, to go back and pick on the television preachers again, we get the idea that faith is getting all worked up inside, getting all stirred up inside, getting all sincere and convincing ourselves inside and just wanting something so bad and, and cutting ourselves like the prophets of Baal and dancing around the altar long enough that we finally get God's attention. That's what faith is. We just got to convince God. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says faith is a sure confidence in the thing that we hope for, which is the promise of the Scriptures. Things not seen. How many of you know that sometimes what we see is not what we see promised in the Scriptures? When we look around, sometimes we see a discrepancy between what our eyes, our physical eyes see, and what our spiritual eyes see in the Word. Now, what are we going to believe? Are we going to believe our physical eyes? Or are we going to believe our spiritual eyes? That's the difference in feelings and faith. If we operate by feelings, we use our physical eyes. And we look around and we get troubled and we get perplexed and we get stirred up. And we, 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 we just have trouble believing and walking with Jesus whatsoever. But if we believe our spiritual eyes and we hold on with assurance to the things that God has promised, things that are not even yet seen, that is faith. Faith is not getting all stirred up. Getting all worked up. Faith is reading the Scriptures and believing the Scriptures. Even when everything else around you says, that can't be right. And when, when have the Scriptures ever been proven wrong? If they had been proven wrong, we wouldn't be here this morning. They would have toppled this thing a long time ago. This faith is threefold. A biblical faith is threefold. Now, you just drop down a few verses in Hebrews 11 and you read Hebrews eleven six. Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith, right? It talks about all these different people who have great faith throughout the Bible. But Hebrews eleven six gives us kind of this threefold definition of faith. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. So we can move mountains without faith and that won't please God. We can raise money without faith. That, that's not going to please God. We can have church without faith. That's not going to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. Clinging to the promises of the Scripture and believing the promises of the Scripture. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For, and that word for means He's about to enlighten us on exactly what He's talking about. For, he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In this very verse right here, we see that faith is threefold. First of all, faith involves going to God. It says, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him for He who comes to God. That's where faith begins. We come to God. The person who walks by faith is characterized by coming to God. 
We don't run to the politician first. We don't run to the bank first. We don't run to the doctor first. Though we, may, we, we need banks, we need doctors. We have politicians. I don't know if we need them. That would be a debate for another day. But first, on the way to the doctor, we go to God. Because we know our hope is in Him. First, on the way to the bank, we're going to God because our hope is in Him. What characterizes a person who lives by faith is that God is first on their agenda. God is their first counsel. God is their first hope. God is their first help. God is their first refuge. Just like the song we just sung, When I am weak, He's strong. I go to Jesus, Jesus kind and good. Faith involves going to God. Faith involves believing in God. It says, he who comes to God must believe also that he is. Now, let's be careful here. Because I would say a vast majority of good old Americans would say they believe God is. Does that mean they have faith? We're not just talking about any God here. We're talking about the God of the Bible. And if you've based your definition of God on what a man told you, even if he's a man dressed real nicely in a church building with a steeple on top on Sundays, rather than on what the Bible says, you may be running to the wrong God. So we have to believe that he is, the God of the Bible is, which means we need to know who the God of the Bible is. And how do we know who the God of the Bible is? We go to the Bible. We don't take secondhand information. I've used this illustration before. It's not part of my notes. So we're probably going to go long again today. I, don't apologize. I do apologize. I don't, whatever. We're going to get through it. But you just imagine to yourself that you, you, you're, you're young and you're spry and your best friend and all the world comes to you and says, hey, I got this girl and I think, I, I think she'll be a good fit for you. She's really smart. She's really nice. Her dad's rich. Every, I mean, she's got a good personality. And she will marry you Saturday if you'll meet her at the courthouse at the Justice of the Peace. Well, I'd like to meet her first. No, 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 it's a blind, blind wedding. We're just going to marry her at the courthouse. She's waiting on you there. How many of you would say, well, I, okay. You might go on a blind date, but you're not going to go on a blind wedding, right? You're not going to go on a blind wedding at the word of your best friend. And yet we will base our view of God and our understanding of God on the word of a man who stands behind a pulpit on Sunday and tells us what to think about God. You realize how much more serious our understanding of God is than who you marry? Now, who you marry is extremely serious, maybe like second importance there. But do you realize how far more important it is that we understand who God is? And yet, we want to take somebody else's word for it? Even if he's as good looking as I am and as waxing eloquent as I am Sunday after Sunday. I mean, you can't take my word for it. Why are y'all laughing? (laughs) You've got to go to the Word of God and see what the Word of God says about God. And it says more than 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. Well, I like that because I know what love is to me and therefore God is what I think love is to me. And therefore God would never get upset with someone because of their lifestyle choices. I mean, it's love. No, 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 no. We don't take our definition of love and impose it on God. We find out who God is and that's how we know what love is. Even if it rubs us in all the wrong ways in our culture. We go to the scriptures. God is love. 
God is love, but it may not be the love you're thinking. God is always present. God knows everything. The past, the present, the future, all the possibilities. God, God is all wise. He never, ever, ever makes a mistake. God is sovereign. He is in control. God is all powerful. He can do anything and everything He chooses to do. He is unchanging. He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed, praise God. He's everlasting. He has no beginning and He has no end. He is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is flawless. He is infinitely so. He is merciful. He is great. He is forgiving. He is long-suffering. He is patient. And we can go on and on and on. And we will never plumb the depths of who God is. No, we will never even plumb the depths of even one attribute of God. Why would we get wrapped up in studying anything else? Faith is rooted in running to God. And faith is rooted in running to the right God. We go to God, we believe in God, and then look at that last phrase there. We hope in God. It says, we come to God, must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder. You know what I find, especially among church people? We can amen and we can nod about all those attributes of God. But the one we struggle with is that God is good. I told you about my friend last week he passed away Tuesday and he passed away saying I can't worry about my not even one year old I can't worry about I'm not going to be there to walk my daughter down the aisle I can't worry about my five children I can't worry about my wife I worship until I die knowing that whatever God does is good. And it's easy to say God is good when things are good. But faith says, you know, that this is a reward. Even the difficult things, even the painful things, even the things that we view as tragedies. If we believe Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, then we have to say everything God does, everything that He does in our life is good. That's faith. That's what the disciples are asking for, and they have no clue what they're asking for, but that's what they're asking for. Increase our faith. You want your faith increased? Run to God. Believe in God. Get to know Him. And know that He is good and serving Him is not a drudgery. Serving Him is a reward. Number four, faithfulness. Verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, We are unworthy slaves, we've done only that which we ought to have done. And Jesus 
gives a little story here. It may rub us wrong in our culture, but it's from Jesus. So if what Jesus said rubs the cat the wrong way, as Billy Sunday said, we got to turn the cat around, right? We can't make Jesus rub the other way. We just turn the cat around. But Jesus says, if you have a slave, when he's worked all day in the field, you don't say to him, hey, come in and sit down and let me fix. No, proper protocol is you tell the slave, fix me something to eat. Go clean yourself up, dress right, serve me. When you're done, then you eat. And you don't write a thank you card for that. Thank you, slave, for, for serving. Now, you don't send a thank you card. You say at the end of the day, you've just done what you're supposed to do. Now, what is Jesus pointing out? That part of being a slave of Christ is just being faithful. And we live in a time where we, I mean, we'll waltz into church and we'll say, Oh, I've read my Bible every day this week. Got my tithe check in my pocket. I remembered to bring my copy of the Bible because the preacher got onto us for just using phones last week, and I brought my own real paper Bible. And and you know, I'm I'm here. I'm dressed right. I didn't even chew the kids out on the way to church. I'm ready to worship God. Aren't you proud of me? I could have been on the ball fields. I could have been with all those other people. But I'm here, Lord. I could have spent my money. I could have spent my money at the restaurant last night. But I've got my check for you, Lord. Aren't you proud of me, Lord? See how good I've been. Now, God, everything ought to go really well for me this week, right? Everything should go real smooth this week, right, Lord? Because I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. What do we learn from Scripture? We learn two things from Scripture. The first thing we learn, you, including me, plural you, us, we, are incapable of doing anything that pleases God. Oh, I want you to hear that. You could waltz in here on the best day of the best week of the best month of the best year of your whole life. And you cannot do anything that pleases God. You can't. The Bible even says in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now, I know what I'm about to say is going to be rude, but you have to see what, what God is saying in Isaiah. And that Hebrew word for filthy garment is not just any filthy garment. It is like literally menstrual, soiled menstrual garments. Now, let's just imagine. We waltz in here on Sunday on the best day of the best week of the best month of the best year of our whole life. And we say, God, look at what I'm going to give to you. And we lay before the holy God of all creation something equivalent to a soiled menstrual garment. I'm not thinking that's getting us a pat on the back, folks. I really don't. We are incapable of doing anything that pleases God, so the last thing we should do is waltz in here like God owes us something. Second thing we learn from Scripture is that we are made capable of doing things that please God. That's good news, isn't it? We are made capable of doing things that please God. Anything that you do that does please God 
God has done in you and through you. So if, if me standing up here waxing eloquent this morning is pleasing to God, it's because God is speaking, not because of me. And if, and if we putting our tithe check in the plate is pleasing to God, it's not because we've sacrificed, but it's because God in us and through us is putting that tithe check in the offering plate. If we're singing this morning... And it's pleasing to God. It's only because God is doing it in us and through us. Philippians 2 and verse 13 says, It is God. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So God puts the desire in us, and God does the work through us, and that brings Him good pleasure. Now let's think about this for a moment. Whatever I do for God in my own strength is filthy rags. Is that getting me... Pluses or minuses when I throw them at his feet? Is that a deduction from my account or an addition to my account? It's not a trick question. It's a deduction, right? Anything I do in my own strength, it's filthy, it's a deduction. But on the other hand, anything I do that pleases God, I didn't do. He actually said here, let me help you. I'm going to give you the right desires, and I'm going to work through you so that you can lay a crown at my feet. Does that get us deductions from our account or additions? It can't be additions. It's like you, go, you saying, Dad, I would really like to get you a good Father's Day gift. Could I borrow $20? And some of you are laughing because that's happened, right? Just, just give me 20 bucks. And I'm going to take three of it and I'm going to use it for a dollar burger, a dollar fry, and a dollar drink. And I'm going to spend 17 on you for Father's Day. I mean, that's, like, that's a deduction. And thank you. So, thank you for the gift. But I paid for it. So we come to God and say, here God. And he says, thank you, but I paid for that. And herein lies the point. God, God has done everything good. And we just go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. The more good we do for Him that He does through us, we're just going deeper into debt to Him. And we're just magnifying and glorifying His majesty and His power and His goodness and His graciousness that He would use something as rotten as me. And it's just glorifying Him. Because anything good comes from Him. Anything that happens good, He's doing we just can be faithful slaves. Try to be faithful slaves. Faithful to abide in Him as the branch abides in the vine. Just hang out in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. And let Him bring forth fruit, more fruit and much fruit for His own glory. And know that at the end of the day, we were just faithful branches. And we're worthy of no accolades. We're worthy of no plaques. We're worthy of no praises. We're worthy of no rewards. It's just faithfulness to a God who is more faithful than us. Does that make sense? If not, I don't have time to clear it up. Number five, the fifth mark of a normal Christian life. Now we come to this interruption in verses 11 and 19. He's, he's given his disciples some pretty serious information to chew on. He's like, you know, this, this life is about falling. This life is about forgiving. This life is about faith. 
This life is about faithfulness. And now he has these lepers show up, and, he, and in these lepers we learn a fifth mark of a normal Christian life, and it's gratefulness. You were hoping for another F, weren't you? But it's just a G, gratefulness. Verse 11, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. They stood at a distance because they were leprous. Don't come in contact with anybody if you're a leper. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when, they saw, when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Jesus just cleansed all ten lepers. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. So he heals all ten. He says, go, present yourself to the priest. They had their way. They're cleansed. One of these guys turns around and says, I'm going back to Jesus. I've got to give him some thanks for this. Jesus answered and said in verse 17, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine? Where are they? Now Jesus knew that nine of these guys were not going to come back and say so much as, Hey, hi, bye, or thanks. And yet he healed all ten. You know, if that had been me, I'd have been like, Bill, Bob, Fred, Sam, Jim, you, you guys, tough. You, Sammy, the Samaritan, I'll heal you because you're grateful. You deserve it. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus healed them all, knowing that nine of them were just going to go their way. Verse 18, was, not, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. And we see a distinguishing factor here in our fifth and final mark of a normal Christian life. And it's gratefulness. Gratefulness is expressed in this text. We learn that gratefulness is expressed in our voices. Gratefulness is expressed with our voices and it is felt in our hearts. Look at how this grateful leper responded. He glorified God Loudly is what the Bible says. Loudly. Now, we're Baptists, so we don't understand that, but he did. He glorified God loudly. Gratefulness was expressed in his voice and with his voice. And listen, people, listen, people, there is a place for loud worship. The psalmist in Psalm 150 said, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent graciousness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Gratefulness is expressed with our voices loudly so we don't sing like this. We sing praise to you. We're like poking the person next to us if they've been embalmed yet. Are we at the right place? No, when we sing about the one true God, belt it out. It's interesting that the church in Edmonton, Canada, we have friends that live there and are kind of on the scene. You know, they arrested the pastor. 
let him out. Well, they do, they just go right back to church. So they steal the building, which is really what the government did. They fenced it three times around. That means we are taking your building. And protesters were out there Sunday. My our friend texted and said, uh, supposedly there's protesters that are tearing the fences down. Well, the protesters weren't church members. They were tearing the fences down, probably because they were frustrated with how silly this government is. And the church people were putting the fences back up. And you know what the church people did, 300 of them? They went to an undisclosed location and worshipped. You put a fence around a building, you think that's going to stop the... If that's all it takes to stop the church, folks, I'm about to go fishing. What are we doing here? If all it takes to stop the church, a chain-link fence. You can't stop a goat with a chain-link fence. You think you're going to stop the sheep? They just relocated to an undisclosed location to worship and to preach, and someone smuggled a song out. It is well with my soul. And I listened to that song. And I think there's a good, good chance that those 300 people were singing It Is Well With My Soul a lot louder Sunday in their undisclosed location than they ever did in their building. Now I want to ask us, is it going to take the government fencing off our buildings? Because if it does, don't you think for a single solitary second in the good old United States of America where the Gideons can't hand out Bibles in the fifth grade anymore, that... The government won't fence this building. You can just sit down and mark your calendar. Is that what it's going to take? Because if that's what it's going to take, you know what God says? God says, my worship is much more important than your building. Now, we can sing loud now. Or we can just keep it inside and sing loud later. But true gratefulness is expressed with loud voices. He Glorified God loudly. Gratefulness was expressed in his voice. He gave thanks to Jesus humbly. Gratefulness was felt in his heart. We have every reason to worship quietly. We have every reason to worship reverently and humbly. And you just said, you just contradicted yourself. No, I didn't. I'm singing two types of songs in my heart right now. On two different days of the week. We have every reason to sing with gratefulness felt down in our heart that is quiet, that is reverent, that is humble. Psalm 51 and verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Worship is a two-sided coin. It's expressed with loud voices. It is felt in humble hearts. Jesus said, there's coming a day when those who worship me will worship me in spirit. Loud, emotional spirit. And in truth, humble, reverent facts. Gratefulness. What's the Christian life like? It's a life that includes falling no matter how good you all look on the outside this morning, you fall. And we must repent and run to Jesus strong and kind. It's a life of forgiving those who don't deserve it. 
those who let us down and continue to let us down. It's, it's a life of faith or confidence in the truth and promises of Scripture when everything else in life casts a shadow of doubt. We go to God. We believe in God. We hope in God. It's a life of faithfulness and abiding in that vine even if there's no success and no immediate gratification. It's a life of gratefulness in everything giving thanks because we don't deserve anything from His hand, much less what He gives. That is what a Christian looks like falling forgiving, faith-filled, faithful, and grateful. Does that in any way, shape, or form characterize your life? If that is foreign stuff to you this morning, then it may be you're not even a Christian, that God has not really done a work in your life. He's not really indwelling you by His Holy Spirit. He's not really made you a new creation. And I want you to hear me loud and clear. God loved you so much that He gave His only Son who willingly humbled Himself and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto, but He humbled Himself and He took on the form of a servant born in a manger in Bethlehem to walk these dusty, dirty streets to feel pain, to feel sorrow, to feel grief, to see sin and yet live a perfect, sinless, spotless, obedient life, the life God requires of you and of me. And not only did He live that perfect, righteous life, but it says He was obedient even to death, even death on a cross. He went to the cross and there on the cross, God the Father poured out on Jesus His wrath upon our sin, our iniquity, our transgression until our sin debt had been paid in full and Jesus said it is finished. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and on Sunday morning he rose from the grave bodily, physically triumphant over death, over hell, over the grave, over the devil himself so that this morning every person in this room who would repent of their sins, who would turn away from their old attitudes and affections and actions and their own filthy self-righteous garments and would turn to God through faith alone, by grace alone and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross can have the perfect righteous record of Jesus put on their account and they can have their sin put on Jesus. They can make an eternal exchange, a swap, your filthy garments and sin for Jesus' clean garments and perfect righteousness and you can have peace with God and you will fall and you will repent and you will forgive and you'll walk by faith, and you'll learn faithfulness, and by God's grace, gratefulness. Is that you this morning? I want to pray for you. And if God is speaking to you, if God is dealing with you, if God is stirring your heart up, listen. We're going to pray for you right now, and don't you leave this room without grabbing me or Andy or Tom or Michael or Brett if you're across the street or somebody you trust. We want to pray with you and point you to Jesus. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your grace and that we can be saved by your grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And that you can begin to put in us those marks of a normal Christian life. We pray that you would do it. We pray that you would work in us. And God, if there's a person in this room who's been playing the game, who's been trying to check the boxes themselves 
to meet your approval, I pray that you would show them that Jesus has already checked every box that needs checking and that they would repent of their sin and that they would put their faith in you. God, grant repentance, grant faith, work in hearts by your Holy Spirit. And as we sing about Jesus and his gospel, God, draw people to yourself. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name.